Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist Podcast. And I'm coming to you, as always, from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. You know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like, I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant, but not famous. And well, the not famous part is, is ironic because they're all very well known and respected uh, in their field by their peers and by the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor might not recognize the name. So I say that they're really brilliant and they're committed to their work. And I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and the work that they're doing. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope some positive things come from sharing these stories with you and to the universe. So today I'm super excited to have on my show, uh, Dr. Anne-Marie Baird. And Dr. Baird is a molecular biologist and she's a lung cancer researcher at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Her research interests are in inflammation, the metastatic cascade, drug resistance, and disease biomarkers. And of course, people know how much I uh, care about uh, biomarkers. Uh, Dr. Baird is the former chair of the IASLC Communications Committee, and she's the president of Lung Cancer Europe, a European platform for lung cancer advocacy. She is an active advocate for the lung cancer community, which we really appreciate. And I'm so grateful to have you on the show. So Anne-Marie, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. We're really happy to be here. Awesome. It's really great to see you. Um, so let's start by having you tell us about yourself. And I know that you're uh, from rural Ireland. We were just talking about that. So I'd love to have you tell us about the younger uh, Anne-Marie uh, and a little bit about your background. So I am from a place, a county in Ireland called Donegal. So it's in uh, Northwest Ireland. We are sometimes referred to as the forgotten county because we're quite <laughs> far away from Dublin in a sense. Uh, and I can feel all the voices going already. Um, but I grew up in a place called Devlin, um, which is close to Glen Bay National Park, a really stunning, the beautiful part of Donegal. And I lived there until I went to college in Dublin. And of course, like a lot of people who move to Dublin and other big cities for universities, sometimes we don't make it back to our home county. And that's what happened to me because I knew I wanted to go into research and I knew to do that. I needed to get to university, study for my degree and then do my PhD and try and get into research that way. And that's exactly what I did. So it was Dublin that offered those kind of opportunities. Yeah, and I think you're. I think you had told me that your mom said, you know, if you go to Dublin, I know you're never coming back, right? <laughs> she did. She did. My mom was like, we're so happy. We're so proud of you because I come from quite a large extended family, um, but not a lot of us um, would have gone on to college education. So um, she was super proud of herself and my father. But of course, there was that nervousness because where I come from is very, very rural. So it was going off to the big city and the worry that all of that, you know, entails in parents' minds is completely understandable. Um, but I was very lucky that they were so supportive as well. So Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, as a parent, I have three boys. And as a parent, when I know when my, when my kids were younger, I could, I could totally appreciate that feeling of like going off to the, to the big city, or even when they went off to college, you know, going far away to college, you know, it was like, yeah. but 
Um, it's, uh, it's interesting, but I have to say my parents are very funny. Like, you know, they, as I say, are very supportive. Um, lung cancer is something that's very personal in my family because we've had two um, deaths from lung cancer within my family. But it is very funny when I talk to my parents because, you know, you go home and you talk about what you do in the lab. You talk about your colleagues of all the various things that's going on. And, you know, you have to apply for grants and get grant funding. And my poor mom still goes, but when are you going to get a proper job? Because in research, uh, the reality is that you can end up going from grant to grant and you don't have that security or stability in your job. So my mom is very much old school and she's still, you know, saying to the neighbours, but I don't know when that proper job is coming, which is quite funny. Does your mom understand, you know, the the grant to grant nature of of being a researcher such as yourself? She does and she doesn't. Um, I think my mom feels that, you know, when you study for quite a long time. So, I mean, you know, you do your undergraduate, you do your PhD, which is a huge commitment. I think then my mom feels, well, you've had all of that education. Of course, you're going to have a proper full time job that's for life. So I think for her, the disconnect is, you know, when you've had that amount of education, that you should just have this very stable job environment. And to her, when she sees that that isn't the case, she gets very confused because she's kind of like, what do you have to do in this world? (laughs) You know, and that's true uh, in a sense, because and I'm not just talking about myself or, you know, the lung cancer field, but, you know, we do need to have more stability in the research world for scientists and anyone who's involved in research and have the support so that, you know, they can establish themselves and establish their career and do what it is they want to do, which is basic research for a lot of people. Uh, it's really interesting, uh, Amory, that you brought that up because that that really was the impetus for my starting this podcast, I had met so many researchers over the past really eight or nine years. And when I really first learned how they had to get funding and how much time they spent on fundraising and writing grants, then the common answer, even for, you know, for established researchers was 75% of their time, you know, spent and and running it like a small business because you didn't know if you if that grant was going to get renewed, so it was hard to plan for the next year. Or we bring in a postdoc. You know, you have ideas, but I can't. You know, be, I'm not sure if I'm going to have the funding for it. So you're preaching to the choir. I 100% agree with you. And I've I've been, you know, I really wanted to start sharing that to people because I don't think it's it's not just your mom who doesn't who doesn't understand that. I think the average, the average person just does not understand because I, I had the same assumption that your mom had. It's like, yep, you, you get a job at, at uh, Trinity College Dublin or at, at uh, Dana-Farber and you're a researcher and you just, they give you a big office and a lab and equipment and, and they just let you do your work, you know, and they, yeah. it, but that's just not how, that's just not how unfortunately it works. Right. Yeah, I mean, well, it's not the reality of the situation for a lot of people. I mean, I'm very lucky in my university in Trinity College. Um, you know, they're very, very supportive. They help you with the grant writing. They help you with any other training or anything else that they can do to make you more competitive. 
So, I mean, I'm so lucky to have that support system around me because I know for a lot of other people, they may not have that in their university. So, and I mean, I guess for me as well, because I wear quite a number of hats, you know, um, I often say, you know, the day job and my extracurricular activities. And I'm extremely lucky that my PI, Professor Orla Shields, and my university are so supportive of all the stuff that I do in advocacy as well. Because without that support, I just wouldn't be able to juggle my full-time role as a researcher and the amount of time and effort I want to get give to advocacy. So I guess, in a sense, I'm a little bit different in that respect as well. But I'm very uh, lucky to have so much support. Yeah, that's great to hear. And we'll definitely talk about your advocacy. But I wanted to circle back with, you know, when you when you went to university and then you decided that you wanted to be um, a researcher, what was it that made you... Uh, inspired to, you know, to want to get your PhD and to focus your life on research? Um, well, I guess it started way back when, when I was about 16 years of age. Um, I was really, really close to my grandfather and uh, he got colorectal cancer. And it was very, very, very difficult. Um, he didn't survive for that long after the diagnosis. But, you know... <laughs> As a young teenager, you have a lot of things going on in your life. And one of those things you don't expect to face is death of a loved one. And I remember being in the hospital and, you know, there was a lot of doctors and nurses around him. And of course, they do amazing jobs. And at the time, I was like, oh, my God, I want to go into medicine. And then I was like, no, 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 hold on. I want to be a researcher because I want to know why this happens. I don't just you know, want to be the person who's giving the drugs or doing the care. So that sort of set me on my research path. And then as the years went on, my grandmother died of lung cancer when I was doing my undergrad in college. And when I was doing my PhD in lung cancer, my aunt passed away from lung cancer as well. And I could really see the difference in the treatment options between colorectal versus lung cancer, even in that kind of, I guess, long space and time. And I could also see the differences in kind of attitudes towards both type of cancers as well. So my grandfather's experience set me down the research path, but then the, the experience of lung cancer in the family sort of set me down the lung cancer path and then put me into the advocacy path as well in the lung cancer community. Well, yeah, that makes perfect sense because when you talk about the difference um, in attitudes towards colorectal cancer and lung cancer, uh, that's something I, I definitely wanted to talk with you about today because I know I've heard you talk about, you know, humanizing lung cancer and uh, and, and your feelings about, you know, stigma. And I, I'd love for you to talk about that. Tell, tell our listeners about your your feelings towards that what I've heard you say humanizing lung cancer, I think I totally understand what you're, 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 you mean, but I'd love to hear you tell us about that. Well, what I mean about humanizing the disease is what a lot of other people are trying to do, you know, putting a face to the disease. And often when I mention this, people are like, oh my goodness, there's 101 other things she should be doing, could be doing, you know, why is she talking about this most basic of things? 
But then you kind of have to say to people, okay, let's take a step back and realize that lung cancer is not on the same playing field as a lot of the other common cancers like breast or prostate cancer. So therefore we do have to work on humanizing the disease so that people will stand up and want to make a voice, a stronger voice for the lung cancer community. So I think with this disease, there is that need to humanize it so that you automatically expect people to care and have empathy, but yet a lot of people in the community do not experience that. And hopefully by humanizing, it will get people to be more empathetic and understanding um, and all of the other things they should be when they come and meet someone with a lung cancer diagnosis. And in terms of the stigma part, I really felt this when my aunt was diagnosed with a small cell lung cancer. Do you know, within about an hour of her diagnosis, I had my first experience of the stigma. Well, did she smoke? Oh, well, sure, she was a smoker. What did you expect? And I was so taken aback because you automatically assume that you're going to be met with a bit of empathy or a bit of understanding. And I just felt so taken aback when that didn't happen as someone's immediate response. Um, but in a way, I'm very sort of, I guess, a typical Irish person. You don't want to be the one who put your hand up. You don't want to be the one who, you know, put your neck above the crowd. And it took me a while to find my voice within the advocacy field. And I was very lucky to meet some amazing people who helped me and encouraged me and helped me to find my voice and, you know, to talk about the disease, to talk about different aspects of the disease and to really try my best within the advocacy community to help make things better for people impacted by lung cancer. Yeah, when you talk about that that stigma, and I, I think about this a lot because I had the same experience when I was diagnosed with lung cancer. Even my friends, you know, you know, maybe hadn't seen for a while, were like, oh, I didn't know you smoked. Well, mm -hmm. no, I didn't smoke. But not that not that it matters, even if you did, but I think you, you make a good point because I feel like when, if you're diagnosed with colorectal cancer and people have empathy for you, they don't say, but, but that could have also been caused by a lifestyle uh, potentially, right? I mean, mm -hmm. but they don't think of it that way. There's empathy no. for somebody. And why, why would you do that? Why not do the same thing with someone who, who has lung cancer, the same yeah. as if you had breast cancer, it's like, well, I, I, I feel that disconnect and I, and I want to make sure I'm always clear to say that even if you had a smoking history, you didn't deserve to have lung cancer. Yeah. So when we talk about the stigma, it's not just, it's not just that, that smoking part of it. I think the empathy part of it is what I, what I hear from you and that, that mm -hmm. resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I guess I'm, you know, I'm still quite naive in a sense because, you know, I'm a very empathetic person, at least I, I hope I am. And, you know, I just find it hard to understand how people can judge people with different cancers, irrespective of what the lifestyle impact may or may not have had on their cancer risk. And I just think what is so frustrating um, from the experiences we've had is that people just automatically feel this right to judge when it's lung cancer because to them smoking lung cancer inextricably linked together so therefore already in their mind there's a blame game happening and they feel the need somehow to vocalize this and you know maybe it's just 
they go to the first question they can think of or whatever it might be. But I think people need to stop and think about why they might need to feel the need to ask certain questions. Because as you say, if someone says they have a breast cancer diagnosis or a prostate cancer diagnosis, you wouldn't be asked as a female, well, did you go for your mammographies? Did you take the contraceptive pill? Did you have children? Did you breastfeed? Do you see what I mean? But yet somehow because of this link with smoking and lung cancer, people just take away those kind of, I don't know, community niceties. I don't even know if that's the correct term that I'm looking for. And they just surpass all of that and they just go completely judgmental. I'm not saying everybody does that, but a lot of people do. And it's just really, really difficult when you're dealing with lung cancer diagnosis as a family to then try and deal with that aspect as well. Yeah. And you, you said, as we're talking about your advocacy and you, you said that there were people that helped you find your voice, you expand upon that and tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, um, it's kind of a funny story. (laughs) Um, so I got onto Twitter and, um, I got onto Twitter through, um, getting an ISLAC fellowship because part of the ISLAC fellowship, they kind of wanted you to try to be on social media a little bit more. So of course I was like, Oh, I'll dip my toe in the Twitter waters. Oh my goodness. And it was the best thing I ever did because I met so many amazing people, um, through that one of which, uh, Dina Hendrickson, who you probably know as faces of lung cancer was one of the first people I connected with on lung cancer, social media. And as the story goes, it went from that. Um, I really got involved within LCSM, got to meet loads more amazing people within the community. I don't want to start naming names in case I miss out someone, but I, I know they know who they are. And then from that, I, you know, I gained a little bit of confidence. I was in Australia for a little while. I did some advocacy work there and that really helped me find my voice a bit more and when I came back from Ireland I was like right that's it now come on Anne-Marie you can do this you can do more now in Ireland in terms of advocacy and then I think my name was just kind of got out there a little bit and then I got involved with some European organizations got involved with Lung Cancer Europe and then I'm not really sure how it happened, but they elected me as president and I'm still really, truly privileged and grateful for the trust they've placed in me um, to be president of their organization. So, yeah, I don't know. Look, what? I'm not too sure. But from something very simple like LCSM, it's brought me here to this today. That's it's a great story. And it's not just, it's not luck. It's 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 I mean. I just feel that your journey is very similar to mine because once I made the decision to to make a difference and to use my voice, it may have been around the same time. For me, it was like 2013, you know, was about, that's when I did the same thing. A friend of mine said, you got to get on Twitter. You got to share your story. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, who wants to hear my story? Like, you know, I, I and I didn't see it. And then I started sharing and then I did the same thing. I started meeting all these people and Deanna was one of them. And and I won't name either because I, I like you. I have dozens and dozens of of friends who I met through my my Twitter experience. So, um, tell us about this. You know, you're now the president of Lunkers Europe. Like, first of all, how much time? Because I I I love the fact that you've 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 mentioned your 
your PI and your university giving you so much support for the work that you do. Uh, I'd like to, first of all, how much time does it take? And, and just, just I'm have to, happy to have you tell us about, about the organization and, and the impact that you're having. Well, time is like the golden question. Um, <laughs> I think if I sat down and counted it all up, it would probably come to a little bit of a scary figure. So I'm going to say it is quite like a second job. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a lot of time and effort uh, that goes into it because obviously it's not just my work with Lucha. I do work with other organizations as well. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to divide up your time as best you can. I'm very lucky to have a very understanding husband um, when you kind of have to say, oh, I'll just be an hour and five hours later, you, you turn up. Um, so I think at this point in time, he'd be like, if I turned up when I said I turned up, he'd be completely floored, shocked altogether. Um, so, yes, I can't give you hours exactly, but it, do, it would take, uh, you know, a substantial period of time throughout the week. And obviously, when November comes around as Lung Cancer Awareness Month, things increase then you know, that little bit more as well. But my work with Lung Cancer Europe is so varied. So uh, Lucha is a nonprofit umbrella organization. We have about 30 members from over 20 European countries. And really what we're trying to do is be the voice of people impacted by lung cancer in Europe. And we do that by trying to be involved in you know, policy. So a big thing for us at the moment is lung cancer screening. Um, we are becoming more involved in protocol design for clinical trials. We create resources for our members. We do capacity building. We help network people together. We work with other European organizations as well as those outside Europe. And basically, as an organization, anything we can do to help engage, support, empower our member organizations across Europe and to increase our membership and to just increase outcomes for the lung cancer community. We're going to try our utmost to be involved in that and to try and work with all of the stakeholders, because I think when we all come together with a common goal for ensuring better outcomes for people impacted this, by this disease, then that makes the collaboration that bit easier when we're all on the one page. Um, but Lucha definitely, you know, they've been around now for eight years. They're building all of the time. And I see my job as president, it's a four-year term, is to really just help the organization grow, expand, um, you know, and to try and put processes in place with the other board members and with our members to future-proof the organization so that it can do what it needs to do and be sustainable in the long term. That's awesome. I, I do believe that we're all in this together and I, I do believe that it's going to take collaboration in yeah. so many different ways, right? Not just with your work in Europe, but I, I believe with re, you know, academic research and pharmaceutical industry and advocacy groups and patients and yeah. patient voice. And, you know, that like that work you talk about with protocol design, I think that's that's a huge issue because I think yeah. there's there's still so much room for improvement in, in how that there is, how that is there done. Is. And, and you, you have to be careful too, because 
I guess, again, I'm going back to my naivety, but, you know, when I came into the advocacy space, I didn't expect it to be as political as it can be in certain instances. And that's a wee bit of a shock to the system, at least it was to me. So, you know, I think it's really, really important for people to come together, but to come together in an open and honest way and to really appreciate each other's input because, you know, sometimes we've been asked to be involved in things, but really it's not the true reflection of what an advocate other association kind of interaction should be you feel like it's more of a rubber stamp exercise and more of the tick the box exercise and you know if people continue to do that it's really going to undervalue the significant impact that people with this disease and lung cancer advocates can have in all spheres across all points of the pathway including research to clinical trials to whatever else we might be chatting about yeah i i often say that when, when, when people think of the word advocate, I think it can mean so many different things. And, and that's part of my journey. My journey was, well, where's my voice? Where's my space? Like, what is my advocacy with quotation fingers? What does it look mm-hmm. like? And I think it's different for everybody, but any, but everybody can be an advocate in their own, in their own way. And for me, it's focusing on research, right? That's mm-hmm. why I'm the, re- I call myself the research evangelist because that's my you know, my, my small part of, you know, just spreading the word about the importance of research and, and the people who are doing the work. Um, but I think, I think some people get confused by the word advocate or think that maybe they, they can't find their voice or, you know, how can I be, I can't be so-and-so because that person is so much more knowledgeable yeah. about it than I am, but you don't have to be like a, a star advocate. Um, and I believe you've been involved with the mentorship of that program, I have, um, yeah. which is an amazing program, but not everybody can, that's not for everybody, you know, yeah. but I just want people to know that there is a place for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, everyone has a story to tell. Everyone's going to bring something to the community. And, you know, I think for us that are already in the community, One of our significant roles is to be there to help support, mentor people to come in irrespective of what it is they'd like to do. You know, some people may want to come in and talk about their disease journey, their experience. Some others might want to come in and be more involved in terms of, you know, being involved in patient advisory groups or grant bodies or policy decision making or whatever it might be. But I think, as you say, we just... You know, we as a community can't be setting up barriers or setting up certain things people have to achieve before they can come in and, you know, take part. There's a place for everyone and everyone should have a voice because, you know, the lung cancer community voice has definitely increased, but I think we can go, you know, even further. And I think we also need to ensure that we're hearing a voice from as many sides as possible. Because, you know, sometimes within the lung cancer community, you only hear from certain kind of groups and not necessarily all groups. So, I mean, for me, with the experience we had in our family with small cell lung cancer, you know, it is very hard to find someone who maybe has an interest in small cell lung cancer advocacy. So, you know, we need to kind of understand ourselves that we still have a lot more to do within the community and to really work on the represent 
competitiveness, if that's the right term, mm. within the community as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I've, I've been talking about that a lot lately because I've, I have been on some advisory panels and, and, you know, I think the, the diversity, it needs to be something that we continue to, to improve the representativeness that you, that you described. It's probably not a word, but we're going to use it anyway. Memory makes up all her so words. All, that's it's, the takeaway message yeah. from this today. I'll give, I'll give if you that, need I'll a give, word, come let me know. <laughs> give you full credit for that one uh but i also like the way that you talk about there is a place there is a there is a place for everyone and we do need to be inclusive and that that actually does sort of transition very nicely into uh, the next thing i want to talk to you about which is the white ribbon project Mm -hmm. um and i always like to ask everybody on my show what did you think when you first heard about it and what have you what are you doing you know, what, what, how you, how you get involved and what kind of impact do you think we're having? Well, the White Ribbon Project, um, it struck me when I started hearing about it, how such a simple idea can be so life-changing for so many people. And I think it's just an absolute exceptional example of how you can start very small, how you can start very simple and how you can build on that and see the difference that it can truly make. So I I think the White Ribbon Project is absolutely amazing and we're so happy to be involved in it here in Ireland. And I just, every time I see a white ribbon and I see the white ribbon there behind you and I've one here behind me in my office as well. And it just it just makes me smile because, you know, the story of it, how it came to be and how it's spread throughout the world. And it's just that, I don't know, brightness or lightness that it brings to the lung cancer community. Um, Here in Ireland, we do have some plans that we want to do with the white ribbon. Um, But with COVID and a number of other things, we've been a little bit delayed. But we want each of our cancer centers of excellence here in Ireland to have a white ribbon at their center. Um, I've been incredibly lucky over the last couple of months to set up the Irish lung cancer community with an amazing group of individuals. We've come together, worked together, and we've set up what we're calling the ILCC. And the white ribbon has been part of that as well, of what we're doing. And we're also trying to take the white ribbon into more European countries through our Lucha membership as well. Um, but it just has such amazing potential. And I think it's like that once you see it, it just brings that kind of lightness around lung cancer, because a lot of times when you see images and things associated with lung cancer, it's just so dark and it just sort of reinforces the nihilistic attitudes associated with the disease. And that's where I just feel like the imagery around the white ribbon is just so transformative from like such a kind of simple beginning as such to what it's grown into now. I totally agree. And, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big supporter and I'm proud to be on the board um, of the white ribbon uh, project. And from the very beginning, you know, being the guardian of the, of the ribbon, I call they, they've called me that because I was very adamant about making sure that the ribbon was made with love from the original ribbon mm-hmm. and that we never lose that part of the story. It's not mass yeah. produced. And it creates challenges like getting a ribbon to, to Ireland, you know, that you can use to trace, yeah. 
to make ribbons in Ireland. That's part of the process, but that's, that's, yeah. we, that, that has to be, it has to be part of it. And, and then, yeah. And right. it's all about just trying because um, so myself and my husband, we made the white ribbons that we're using now in Ireland and we've sent some to the UK as well. And uh, I'm not DIY adverse, but I could see my husband <laughs> when I went to touch the jigsaw to start cutting out the ribbons. And I was like, no, I can do this. So uh, we we took some pictures and posted them on social media. And uh, but you do feel it, you know, when you're you know, tracing it out from one that's come from the US that has been handmade there. And, you know, you make it from cut, from tracing it out to cutting it, to painting, to adding the stickers, to adding your message at the back. It's a process. And as you go through that process, you know, I thought a lot about people I've met in the lung cancer community. I've thought a lot about my family and it just kind of gave you that little bit of time I guess, to reminisce about that while doing something else for the community. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. It, it's emotional. It's emotional. I believe yeah. it is emotional. I do. I agree with you. And I, I just delivered one um, a couple of weeks ago to a um, sister of a woman who lost her uh, sister, a woman who lost her sister. Um, and it was really emotional for me again, because I hadn't given one uh, in, a f- in a few months. And so... Mm-hmm. It, it, and I had made it at my house and I signed the back of it and I could feel the emotion when I handed it to her when, when she first took a look at it and she felt it, but I remember making them as well. And when I was, when I had people at my house making them and I had, uh, Dr. Justin Gaynor and Inga Lennis from Masternal hospital, uh, at my house on a Saturday morning, making ribbons and the, uh, the photos of him, of, of, of Dr. Gaynor who has a thoracic program at Mass General, yeah. as you probably know, yeah. um, the, watching him trace the ribbon, I have a video of it. And oh. it was just, it was just so cool. And some of, some of his patients, a couple of his patients were there. Wow. And so when I told them that he was coming, they were like, no way. I'm like, yeah, oh my he's coming. So it's the community building that we talk about. Chris Draft talks about it all the time, but it, yeah. it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's the whole process, the emotional experience. It's, it's that's the power of it. And I don't yeah. ever want that to go away, which is why it's unbranded and, and it's why we, we include everybody. And um, it's always going to be that way. It's just, as, as long as, as long as we're involved with it, we'll, we, we will never change. So yeah, appreciate well, don't, you. Don't ever change because it's amazing. And honestly, we hope to do an awful lot more this year. We've just faced some delays with COVID and illness and a couple of other things. Um, but we have not given up our dedication to the cause. We're just a little bit delayed in our plans. We totally understand. And, and I and we definitely appreciate it. You've been very supportive uh, of the White Ribbon Project. And there's a lot of other plans that are coming together here in the U.S. as well that that I've been hearing about from, from some of the big pharma companies, you know, who want okay. to do more and, and, you know, have events to, to get their employees hands-on ribbons and yeah Fantastic. so we continue you know to to think of 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 building on what we've we've had so far mm-hmm. so again thanks for that but that's amazing and i want to i want to finish up by asking you something i like to ask my guests i don't want you to put you on the spot uh, okay you're gonna put me on the spot <laughs> eh, just a little it's not that hard uh, i always like to ask you know t- for you to share something that you're passionate about outside of your work or that people may not know about you without getting too personal. <laughs> well, 
Um, oh my goodness. Well, I guess unsurprisingly, I am very, very passionate about Donegal, the county that I come from. So, you know, if you've any verbal disagreement with me and Donegal comes into it, you know, we are going to go and go and go and go until I have the last word. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so sorry to all of those that have experienced that already. Um, but I guess that's not a surprise. But something people do find very funny about me is that I love cows. <laughs> so there's a surprise. I am fascinated by cows. Um, uh, when I was a child, we had cows that I helped my dad look after. We still have sheep, but we don't have cows anymore. And I was just fascinated by cows. Um, I just love them so much. So like my house is full of cow stuff. I have. That's awesome. From cow teapots to cow pictures to anything you can think of. I have it in a cow version. And um, even here in my office, I have cow stuff. Um, I've cow stickers on my lab book. Um, yeah. So that's probably a surprising passion that probably not a lot of people know about me that I'm so mad about cows that I actually had a cow wedding cake no way yes <laughs> way way <laughs> and my poor fantastic mom, we talked about my mom and my poor mom was just like what have I reared so what I don't know heck? if you use that term in the U.S. but it's used here in Ireland and my mother is just like what have I reared what have I reared so, what <laughs> That's so funny. Well, my I mom love, keeps things real. <laughs> she definitely does. Well, I love I love the fact that you're passionate about about where you're from, and you know the fact that you had cows as a kid. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, I realized when I interviewed uh, Dr. Brennan Stiles um, that he grew up on a dairy farm in Virginia. No way. Way. And I was oh like, I didn't gosh. know they had dairy farms in Virginia, and so. You know, like I said, it's always fun to learn a little bit something about uh, about the people on my show because you know, I, it it just makes you more likable or lovable, and definitely much more human. And you know, it's it goes beyond just the work that you do. You know, you're a cool person too. So, um, listen, Emery, I have so really... many questions now about Brendan. I'm going to have to send him an email and go <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> like I said. I don't think I even, I think I found out that after I had him on my show and, and then the next time I talked to him, I'm like, dude, you grew up on a dairy farm. I was like, I was like, how did he, he went to UV? I mean, he's, you know, it's like, he doesn't strike me as someone who grew up on a farm, no, but um, not at all. No, right. <laughs> so anyway, it's all good. Well, listen, uh, Amory, it's, 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 it's been a pleasure to have you on my show. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work. Thank you for everything you do for the community. And most, most importantly, thank you so much for being on my show. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it too.